Thank you all so much for coming. I'm delighted to have Jedediah Prudy with us to deliver the Lillian Stone Lecture. Before introducing Jed, I thought I would tell you a little bit about the lecture itself. It was made possible through a, a gift from University of Virginia alumni Thatcher Stone, the class of 82 at the law school, who is with us today, and Frank Kittredge of architecture class of 78, and it has been named for Thatcher Stone's mother, Lillian. It is hosted jointly by the schools of architecture and law, and the lectureship is intended to fulfill the intellectual and educational commitments of the two schools by creating uh, an, an opportunity for students to be educated about environmental policy and the National Environmental Protection Act. This is the third year of the lecture, and we are thrilled uh, to have Jedediah Purdy here, and also thrilled about the recent expansion of our environmental law program with the addition of Kale Jaffe of the class of 01 to teach our environment and regulatory law clinic. So uh, we are building in this area, and I'm so happy that uh, this important lecture adds a lot to our intellectual life in this area, and that we will continue to add to our life in this area as well. So Jed Purdy is the Robinson O. Everett Professor of Law at Duke University. He graduated from Harvard College, summa cum laude, with an A.B. in Social Studies and received his J.D. from Yale Law School. After that, he clerked for Judge Pierre N. Laval of the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New York City. He has been a fellow at a number of places, the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School. He's also been an ethics fellow at Harvard University and a visiting professor at Yale Law School, Harvard Law School, the Georgetown University Law Center, and here at UVA. And I always think of Jed, as I told him just a second ago, as the one who got away. Uh, so we are very happy to have him even temporarily part of our UVA law community. Professor Purdy teaches constitutional, environmental, and property law, and he writes in all of these areas. He also teaches legal theory and writes on issues at the uh, intersection of law and social and political thought. In addition to numerous law review articles, uh, Professor Purdy is the author of five books, including a trilogy on American political identity. The most recent book in the trilogy is called A Tolerable Anarchy, Rebels, Reactionaries, and the Making of American Freedom. He's also written two other books, Democratic Vistas, Reflections on the Life of American Democracy, and the Meaning of Property, Freedom, Community, and the Legal Imagination. Last year, he published a book in environmental law, uh, After Nature, A Politics for the Anthropocene. I don't know if I said that the right way. Anthropocene? Okay, we're going to come back to that word in a minute. Uh, he's also a prolific and prominent public intellectual who writes essays frequently in publications like the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times, and Democracy Journal. As you can already see, Professor Purdy has taken on a wide swath of law, politics, and American society. With respect to environmental issues in particular, his work shows a sweeping grasp of the ideas and practices that have affected the environment in the United States and how those ideas and practices shape present environmental choices. In his most recent book, After Nature, A Politics for the Anthropocene, Jed reframes the relationship between people and their environment in light of the pervasive influence of human action on natural spaces and processes. If Anthropocene is not a word that rings a bell or trips off your tongue, as soon as I explain, you will have an etymological aha moment, which is what happened to me. So the word was coined by geologists to describe a new planetary epoch. Think the Pleistocene epoch, the age of humans, anthropo and scene. The term recognizes the crucial role of humans not only in shaping what we might previously have considered the separate realm of nature, but also in determining the values identified with that nature. As Professor Purdy has written, Quote, both the empirical and the normative baselines are irrevocably gone in the Anthropocene. In the future, both the material characteristics of the world and the values embodied in it will be, in important ways, products of human activity and decision. This reframing puts the emphasis on human choice. In Professor Purdy's view, the shaping choices should be made politically rather than consigned to market allocation or technocratic decision making. That puts the burden on democratic institutions, which is, Jed contends, the challenge for the future. I know I speak for all of us in saying that we look forward to Professor Purdy's lecture today, to hearing more about his ideas of nature and governance as they bear on the important but oft-neglected theme of environmental justice. Please join me in welcoming Professor Purdy.
Thank you so much, Dean Galyubov, Risa, an old, an old friend and someone <clears throat> I've admired in a lot of ways for a long time, as I have many people on this faculty and at UVA. <clears throat> so modern environmental law is defined in large part by a set of statutes <clears throat> that were adopted in a burst of legislation in the 1970s. The National Environmental Policy Act, signed on New Year's Day of 1970, the Clean Air Act later that year, the Clean Water Act in 1972, the Endangered Species Act in 1973, and so on in that manner until about 1977. Environmental law is also defined very significantly by a set of advocacy and professional organizations that grew up in the same years. <clears throat> the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Environmental Law Institute, the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, which later became Earth Justice, the Environmental Litigation Outfit. <clears throat> they all appeared or else took their current forms in the same years. And the advocacy groups that I've just named are part of the story of environmental law because their work helps to define the field. Environmental law has always been susceptible to identity crisis. It doesn't have the unifying textual basis of constitutional law. It doesn't have the doctrinal coherence of contract or tort, or the clear topical boundaries of antitrust or tax. Instead, it has an organizing principle that might be thought of as everything is connected. So what counts as environmental law has always been partly a matter of the priorities of institutions, movements, and advocates and experts. <clears throat> This will become relevant. In the time since it was formed, environmental law has faced many political and intellectual challenges. In the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan's administration appointed candidly anti-environmentalist officials to run the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of the Interior, and only litigation and political pressure kept them from substantially hollowing out the environmental agenda of the 1970s. And there have always been pockets of resistance to the very legitimacy of environmental law. There are plenty of Westerners who deny that the federal government has the constitutional power to manage public lands or to regulate private lands through laws like the Endangered Species Act and the Clean Water Act. Some of those radicals were involved in the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Eastern Oregon at the beginning of this year. They believed they were engaged in an act of constitutional disobedience against overreaching environmental law. And now, President-elect Trump looks set to bring his own set of challenges. So this afternoon, with this background in place, I'm going to talk about a challenge to modern environmental law that has come from within the movement or from nearby it. <clears throat> relative to those other more familiar challenges that I just mentioned. This is the challenge that comes from the environmental justice movement, a network of activists and scholars that's arisen since the 1980s to make some fundamental challenges to what its advocates call mainstream environmentalism. That is the version of environmentalism that came to be in the 1970s. Environmental justice scholars and advocates have made three big criticisms of what they call mainstream environmental law. <clears throat> First, they say, it doesn't speak to how environmental harms and benefits are distributed, which is especially important when they follow the lines of poverty and race. <clears throat> this criticism arises in important ways from the grassroots fights that produced the environmental justice movement fights about decisions to place garbage dumps, toxic waste sites, incinerators, and power plants in neighborhoods where poor and non-white people lived. The environmental statutes of the 1970s accomplish many things, but they do not prevent this. Second, environmental justice critics challenge the mainstream environmental idea <clears throat> of what environmental problems are in the first place. <clears throat> they say that idea is focused on the beautiful outdoors, that it has an anti-urban bias, 
that it isn't engaged enough with artificial human environments like neighborhoods and workplaces. As one important pair of environmental justice scholars and activists <clears throat> wrote, the environments we most care about should be, quoting, the places where we live, work, learn, and play, no matter whether they're natural or built. And it shouldn't escape anyone's attention that while more prosperous people tend to take clean and safe living spaces and working spaces like this lovely one for granted, and also to be able to escape to wild places that feel natural or ecological, like the beautiful places just to the west of here, poorer people <clears throat> often spend their lives in the compromised and artificial environments of neighborhoods and workplaces. Third, and this is relevant to our professional world, critics say mainstream environmentalism overvalues elite forms of advocacy, like litigation and high-level lobbying, and doesn't make enough room for popular engagement, that it creates a movement of professionals and experts, lawyers, economists, ecologists, and more lawyers, who have limited interaction with and do relatively little to empower the people who live with the most severe environmental problems. So I want <clears throat> to help us to understand these criticisms historically and institutionally. When environmental justice scholars and activists take aim at what they call mainstream environmental law, they're addressing the statutes, agencies, and professional and advocacy organizations that were built into their more or less current form in the 1970s and early 1980s, <clears throat> the ones I began with. The environmental justice criticisms are very important, but they overlook something that also matters. The mainstream environmentalism, whose narrowness they criticize, was a very recent development, and maybe one that could have turned out differently. If we draw back the historical lens, from the 1970s and 1980s. Something comes into view <clears throat> that I would like to call a long environmental justice movement. In this movement, for more than a century, activists and scholars have been engaging the themes of fairness, inequality, and political and economic power in the human environment. I wanna tell you a little about that movement, about why we've tended to forget it and why it is not a more central part of mainstream environmental law and politics now. And I'll suggest some directions that could make it more central. So what was this movement? Here are a couple of key examples. <clears throat> Let's take two influential environmental developments of the 1960s. The passage of the Wilderness Act of 1964 and the publication of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, between 1960 and 1962. The Wilderness Act has protected more than 100 million acres of public land for hiking and camping and solitude. It was a great victory for a long political drive to preserve public land that went back to the first national park, Yellowstone, which was created in 1872. But its central value, wilderness, untouched land set aside from all human contamination seemed to prove that the movement that loved wild nature didn't care all that much about the places where people lived and worked and played and learned. <clears throat> Second, Carson's book described a poisoned world where pesticides passed through the air and water and soil and entered the flesh of animals and people and spread sickness and death everywhere. And in that description, she helped to create a widespread ecological consciousness, an awareness that everything is connected and that we have something at stake in that, and also to connect that consciousness with a sense of fear and crisis that helped to spur the 1970s anti-pollution statutes. But her great book, which followed pesticides through their cycle of destruction, 
ignored the mainly Latino farm workers of California and Florida who were directly exposed to pesticides in their work in the fields. The human victims of pesticides, in Carson's telling, lived in iconic small town and suburban America. They were not workers. They were implicitly white and Anglo. And so Carson, like the wilderness movement, can seem to prove that the narrowness as well as the power of mainstream environmentalism is there at the beginning. But if we look behind these two to the earlier decades when the movement for wilderness took shape and when scientists and activists pioneered the socially engaged toxicology that Carson was carrying forward, <clears throat> we can see the long environmental justice movement at work. The movement for wilderness was centered on an outfit called the Wilderness Society, which was founded in 1935. And a rather typical founder was a man named Benton Mackay, who was a planner and interdisciplinary intellectual, who's also credited with the idea behind the Appalachian Trail. And when you read Mackay, you see some surprises. He defined environment as the built and industrial environment just as much as the wild and natural one. His great image of ecological thinking was an image of New York City composed as being composed, that is, imagining the city as made up of what he called a series of flows, the Hudson River and the Atlantic Ocean, the prevailing winds out of the west, the seasons, <clears throat> but also the barges of steel from the Great Lakes, ships full of grain steaming off to Europe, and the highways and the railroads that brought workers into the city every day and then exhaled them again to the suburbs in the evening. <clears throat> and Mackay saw the struggles of factory workers and wilderness advocates in the 1930s as two parts of a movement with very large goals to make the whole human environment from the workplace to the untouched woods, welcoming and stimulating and a good place to be alive. He thought this program required extensive and intensive public planning of cities, transport networks, and regions. And you could draw similar portraits <clears throat> quite accurately of the broad concerns of the other early wilderness activists. The wilderness movement they built was intensely concerned with the whole human environment, the condition of factory workers and people living in cities, and the role of the state in the economy and in social life. And what about Carson? Well, the scholar whose previous research runs all through Silent Spring is Wilhelm Hoiper, an industrial toxicologist who devoted his career to understanding the effects of workplace exposure to what he called the new artificial environment of synthetic chemicals. His goal in understanding what the new poisons were doing to people was to secure, his phrase again, a healthful living, not merely for a small, select, and socially privileged class, but for everyone. <clears throat> he was working in a tradition of industrial toxicology that was pioneered in the US a generation earlier by Alice Hamilton, who was the first woman faculty member at Harvard, a public health scholar, who went into factories and engaged with workers to understand what lead and phosphorus and other chemicals were doing to their bodies. Also in Hoiper's background were movements like the Workers' Health Bureau, which in the 1920s was a joint creation of women public health activists and independent unions and which researched workplace hazards, as they put it, from the point of view of the worker. So Carson's work was rooted in industrial toxicology, which in turn was rooted in movements for social reform and efforts to build workers' power as part of a broad idea of the renovation of the human environment for human health and well-being in the early 20th century. So why did these broader concerns not come more explicitly into the environmentalism that took shape in the burst of statutes and institution building in the early 1970s? 
to understand this, I think we have to change the question somewhat. It's not that the architects of modern environmental laws and institutions didn't care about these questions of equality and the total human environment. It's that they thought they were addressing them. As Senator Ed Muskie of Maine, who was a primary drafter of those laws, explained at Earth Day 1970, quoting him, man's environment includes more than natural resources. It includes the shape of the communities in which he lives, his home, his schools, his places of work. And Muskie went on to argue that the only kind of society that has a chance is, still quoting, a society that will not tolerate slums for some and decent houses for others, rats for some and playgrounds for others, clean air for some and filth for others. And he insisted, distilling all of this argument, <clears throat> that those who believe that we environmentalists are talking about the Grand Canyon and the Catskills, but not Harlem and Watts are wrong. This is 1970. The environmental statutes were passed in a world where, from the point of view of their architects, they were environmental justice statutes. But that world was already disappearing as the new environmental laws were being written understand why the environmental justice criticism of mainstream environmental law was necessary, we need to understand the premises of that world and how they were ripped away. <clears throat> First, the people who wrote the environmental laws lived in a time that was more economically equal than the U.S. had ever been, and they believed that trend was going to continue and that therefore economic equality was a pro inequality was a problem substantially solved. We now know, thanks to the work of Thomas Piketty and others, that they were living at the end of an anomalous period of widely shared growth that lasted across the North Atlantic between the end of World War II and the beginning of the 1970s. Inequality was just beginning to reassert itself as they legislated on the premise that it was done, and it has been growing more or less ever since. <clears throat> so just as the environmental justice critics say, the laws that govern pollution and dumps for hazardous material don't address how those get distributed. Leaving out distribution was a mistake that was much easier to make if you believed that the country was steadily getting more equal. Environmental justice arose in response to the fact that environmental harms are distributed along very familiar lines of race and poverty. Those lines were expected to become less important in the years ahead. Legislators like Muskie also said that they expected the environmental laws to be buttressed and reinforced by other reform legislation that would overcome poverty and social isolation foster public health, make workplaces safer and communities more livable. Instead, the 1970s brought both the return of economic inequality and the end of political support for these kinds of ambitious legislative reforms. <clears throat> and then, a legal change. <clears throat> the Supreme Court removed an essential protection against disparate environmental impacts in the form of equal protection challenges. Between 1976 and 1979, right after the major environmental statutes were largely written, <clears throat> the court adopted the current constitutional standard, which requires equal protection plaintiffs to show that the government action they object to was affirmatively motivated by discriminatory purpose. When the statutes were written less than a decade earlier, their authors wouldn't have supposed <clears throat> the grossly unequal distribution of environmental burdens along racial lines would be constitutional. After 1979, precisely as the environmental justice movement began to appear, that kind of distribution was presumptively constitutional. And now the only remedy was in the statutes, which didn't address the question. So the environmental laws were imagined, at least by some of their authors, to be parts of a larger remaking of the human environment, which would also advance equality. But they were not designed to do that alone. 
because it was not expected that they would have to do it alone. So this history helps to put in context two of the charges environmental justice critics make against mainstream environmental law. The lack of attention to distribution and its incomplete picture of what should count as the human environment. Mainstream environmental law as we know it today was produced then by two stages of narrowing from the broad and integrating concern for questions of fairness and power within the whole human environment of what I've called the long environmental justice movement. The first was what we have just discussed, the narrowing of the 1960s and 1970s. <clears throat> second was the institutionalization of environmental law advocacy in the 1970s, and I'll turn to that now. <clears throat> So the third charge that environmental justice critics make against the environmental mainstream, you recall, concerns mainstream environmentalism's emphasis on elite advocacy. And this also is not a perennial feature of some kind of timeless environmentalism, but developed institutionally in the 1970s through specific decisions um, above all critical investments that the Ford Foundation, a major liberal donor for institution building, made to shape the new groups that in turn helped to shape the field of environmental law. <clears throat> the Environmental Law Institute, the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, the groups that I named at the beginning as contributing to the form and priorities of environmental law were all picked out and cultivated by the Ford Foundation to advance a vision of lawyers' role in advocacy and social reform that can be reconstructed from the documents of the Ford Foundation's broader commitments at that time into a, a theory, you could say, of change that we can call legal liberalism. Legal liberalism saw lawyers as channels for marginal voices that otherwise wouldn't get heard in a pluralist democracy. The idea was that if you could just get these marginalized voices their day in court in front of an impartial decision maker, you could ensure, or at least make it much more likely, that their interests would be respected in the decision process that resulted. In this respect, the institutions of environmental law were shaped by a conception of the legal profession that Ford was also helping to spread at the same time through law school clinics, American Bar Association, pro bono guidelines, and poverty law services, a whole network of new institutional roles for lawyers within a scheme of progressive governance. <clears throat> the reformist goals of legal liberalism could be quite robust in their substance, <clears throat> But as a model of social change, it had some defining limitations that were tied to its strengths. It was elite-driven and relied on expertise. Its advocates were inclined to imagine, especially in the late 60s and early 70s, that they spoke for an uncontroversial public interest that responsible decision makers like judges and agencies could implement. And in the end, it tied its reformist goals to the courts at the same time that judges were retreating from their 1960s role as drivers of structural change. And in all of these ways, the institutions <clears throat> that came to the center of the field in the 1970s helped to make environmentalism intensely a movement of lawyers and experts, funded by middle class mass membership groups and wealthy donors, and not driven by large-scale mobilization or engagement. This was a very domesticating development for a movement that had begun in Earth Day 1970 with the largest one-time mobilization in American history, with more than a million people participating in marches and teach-ins across the country. <clears throat> There's one more key part to the story. In the 1970s, just like in the 1930s, there were also less expert-driven, more confrontational movements pressing more encompassing versions of the environmental agenda. <clears throat> In the early 1970s, an insurgent labor organization called the Miners for Democracy 
briefly took over the United Mine Workers of America in a Democratic Union election. They were fighting a corrupt union leadership that had literally murdered one of their leaders and his family in their home. They were pressing for safety regulations in mines that killed hundreds of people every year in disasters and thousands more slowly through black lung disease and other industrial illnesses. And although this is usually forgotten, even by the few people who remember them at all, they argued that if mining could not be done in an environmentally responsible way, without destroying mountains or killing streams, then miners should refuse to do it. <clears throat> they proposed that both safety regulations and environmental principles should be directly enforced in the workplace by strikes. They showed how this could work when 90% of the miners in West Virginia walked out of the mines in an unauthorized strike that more or less shut down the coal industry for months until they won serious medical benefits for retirees and disabled miners who were dying from black lung disease. For them, just like for the 1930s activists who stood in back of Rachel Carson, <clears throat> the workplace and the woods and waters were all part of the environment and working people should defend them to defend themselves. And they were not quite as unusual as you might think. One of the major funders of the first Earth Day was the United Auto Workers, whose president, Walter Reuther, was a strong environmentalist who believed in using the union to advance a progressive social agenda that built on, but also went well beyond his members' economic interests. Reuther also helped to fund the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, among other causes. When he died in a plane crash in the early 1970s, he was preparing a proposal to the union leadership to include environmental issues in the union's collective bargaining agenda with management so that organized labor would have been an anti-pollution force within the industry. <clears throat> now all of this that I'm recalling by now is so far gone that it can be hard to recover the sense of possibility of that time. <clears throat> There were some later tactical alliances between the new environmental groups and organized labor, especially over workplace chemical exposure. But labor never went green, and environmentalism never became a workers' movement. And by 1970, the UAW, United Auto Workers, <clears throat> opposed amendments that strengthened the Clean Air Act. And last Tuesday, the coal fields came out very strongly for Donald Trump. And had already done so 16 years earlier in 2000 to help defeat Al Gore's environmentalist presidential candidacy. By the 1980s, the new groups that the Ford Foundation had shaped were collaborating formally and extensively with old line woods and waters groups to define an environmental agenda that was memorialized in official publications that were issued jointly by 11 leading national groups that did not speak to social and economic inequality, to the disparate environmental vulnerability of marginal populations, or to the special environmental threats to working people. This was the mainstream environmentalism that the environmental justice movement arose by attacking. In many ways, the environmental justice movement was right to attack it. But no one seemed to realize what a recent development it was Mainstream environmentalism, with the limitations that environmental justice advocates pointed to, was not much older than the environmental justice movement that criticized it. Ironically, the critics tended to imagine mainstream environmentalism as a perennial thing, a movement that had always been narrow in its concerns, its constituency, and its tactics. In the later 1980s and 1990s, this view was replicated in advocacy and in scholarship, from seminal and attention-getting reports on the unequal distribution of environmental hazards, to touchstone scholarship like environmental historian Bill Cronin's watershed essay, The Trouble with Wilderness, which diagnoses environmentalism as the product of a narrow woods and waters agenda and an elite constituency going all the way back to the country's origins. And so, 
the long environmental justice movement was lost from view. What difference does remembering it make today? <clears throat> First, could things have gone differently? Sometimes I think so. If supporters like Reuther or even the Ford Foundation had built stronger connections between, say, early environmentalism and the civil rights movement, then a greater emphasis on structural inequality and some healthy doubts about liberal optimism might have gone into the design of both the statutes and the institutions that came to define environmental law. Already in 1965, civil rights leader Bayard Rustin had called for the civil rights movement to switch its goals from formally equal rights driving forward integration to economic reconstruction. And such voices might have built those questions into the structure of environmental law. Similarly, if some parts of organized labor had taken militant and socially minded environmentalism into its agenda in the early 1970s and funded and supported new environmental groups alongside more liberal and less confrontational organizations like Ford and the wealthy donors that became the group's lifeblood, mainstream environmentalism might have been something closer to an environmental justice movement all along. But sometimes I think it couldn't have gone so differently. The narrowing of the environmental agenda during the 1960s and the Ford Foundation's vision for advocacy were connected with the whole political economy and political culture of the US during the Cold War. <clears throat> Labor's retreat in the 70s into economic self-defense and zero-sum contests with environmentalists was part of a general return of inequality and relative scarcity in the 1970s, which affected the whole North Atlantic. The loss of the broad reform agenda that senators like Muskie expected to buttress the new environmental laws was part of a general political revolt against the 20th century welfare state. The structural inequality that guides environmental harms along familiar racial and economic lines runs very deep. So, still, I think we can, today, try to retrieve the spirit of the long environmental justice movement. And I'll name just a few ways. <clears throat> we can press for enforcement of environmental laws like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act in ways that are consistent with the broadly egalitarian vision that informed their creation. <clears throat> Just one example. Lax regulation of industrial agriculture, especially animal feeding operations, where thousands or tens of thousands of head of livestock are jammed together in factory-like conditions, contributes to non-attainment of environmental health standards and exposes people living nearby to a bunch of hazardous pollutants. These are concentrated in areas that are pervasively poor and significantly non-white. And aggressive enforcement of anti-pollution laws against facilities like these would simply make these statutes do the environmental justice work that they were originally expected to do. <clears throat> Second, a little more conceptually interesting, we can look for problems of inequality that are not conventionally treated as environmental and propose that they be focal points for advocacy. So consider the way that the Farm Bill, which is currently pumping more than $65 billion in subsidies into the farm economy over five years, makes calories from corn syrup and soybean oil relatively cheaper than health and makes healthier calories more expensive. This price skew has a controversial but also plausible effect on obesity and related diseases like diabetes which are tied to poverty and race. So maybe we should take a cue from environmental thinking and see the food system as a medium of risk exposure like air and water. The fact that food intake always involves consumer choice doesn't necessarily wash out the question <clears throat> of environmental justice. Like deciding where to work, deciding what to eat is a choice taken under constraint and in the face of economic trade-offs, 
and the constraints include the background of legal structure that determines your options and their trade-offs. Subsidy laws interact with the distribution of wealth and income to structure the economic and health consequences of any consumer choice about what to eat. I think the members of the long environmental justice movement who believed that the fact that your job could make you sick or kill you was no less an environmental issue because you had chosen your job should prompt us to say the same thing today about your meal. Third, we can look at cases where environmental policy is making explicitly distributional decisions and ask what standards of justice and political accountability should guide these. California's recent climate change legislation produces a large pool of revenue that's meant to be spent in ways that address communities' environmental challenges. So who will decide what that means and what will the criteria be? Will one goal be to go beyond preventing new pollution and climate change hazards and go on to addressing different places and communities, different baseline levels of contamination and vulnerability to remediate their inherited environmental inequality? That would be an environmental version of the economic reconstruction that Bayard Rustin argued should be the next stage of the civil rights movement. The same kinds of questions attach to spending the remediation fund from the Gulf of Mexico Deepwater Horizon spill and would attach to the revenue from many kinds of national or transnational carbon tax or cap and trade schemes. We should get used to pressing on these questions now, even if we're not going to see those regimes come into being in the next four or eight years. In short, we should rejoin the long environmental movement, the long environmental justice movement. Thank you. Shall we? Maybe um, we could take several, and then I'll speak to them together, if we have any. Ken. Yeah. Jed, thanks for, for your um, remarks. I thought they were really stimulating. Uh, Thank you. I just wondered if you would comment on something that I mean to be complimentary, not in any way contradictory, as you said, that, that, that um, so much of the Yes. Yes. right to say, and it presses against any simple idea that environmental laws and institutions actually are committed to a narrow woods and waters perspective. That as you say, the goal of many of the 1970 statutes, not so much the Endangered Species Act or the public land statutes, but certainly the big anti-pollution laws, is re are, really about public health. Um, I think the, I'll go a very slightly long way around. Um, I think the interesting thing that the environmental justice complaint has to say about those statutes <clears throat> is that while they set or attempt, seek to set a universal floor for exposure to environmental hazards, they do nothing, this is just to recapitulate, they do nothing to restrict um, or shape the distribution of the hazards that remain. Um, I think the environmental justice critics tend to overlook the extent to which the achievement of that national floor was actually a very substantial environmental justice achievement in its context when there were very significant differences in pollution concentration, especially in economically dependent industrial communities. <clears throat> so the, the long way around is to say I, what you point out 
that the kind of charisma of environmental advocacy in politics still has a lot to do with pandas and wolves and big trees, while a lot of the statutes of groups like NRDC, which has always been, I think, on the cutting edge of, of environmental justice work, um, do a lot of anti-pollution litigation. And I, my question, I guess, is, is, how, is how far that fact <clears throat> is a product of the story I'm telling, in which, in terms of their constituency and their public profile, the institutions whose advocacy does a lot to define the scope and public face of environmental law end up retreating into an expanded version of their traditional woods and waters constituency rather than coming to be seen as a kind of public health, social justice kind of movement. John Cannon. I would be interested in hearing your view about environmental justice outside of the United States. So I'm thinking particularly of climate change, which is a global issue, we believe it's an issue. And I, I hear on the part of advocates within the discourse on climate change um, a, lot of this, a lot of debate about the distributional effects of climate change and opposition between developing countries and developed countries about who's responsible and what justice requires and so forth. And I'm wondering whether that is a stage that brings the same concept that you've been dealing with domestically and the same strains of history into a, a, a global setting, where is that fundamentally different than, than what we've experienced or might experience here in the United States on these more <clears throat> now, I think in some deep conceptual sense or some basic conceptual sense, it is um, much the same set of problems in that you have a phenomenon whose effects are vastly disparate for different populations basically because of the way those effects are channeled through their <clears throat> existing background levels of economic and technological capacity or vulnerability. Um, I think in the same way that in some kind of terrible but actual rough and ready way, people expect poor people to get sick and are more surprised when wealthy people get sick, disabled, and so on. Um, there's an even more intense tendency on the global scale to imagine that the hazards of being poor um, in the world, living in Bangladesh or sub-Saharan Africa, are problems that are somehow endemic or natural, almost natural to those regions rather than the product of um, sort of joint global, joint and unequal global economic activity. And I actually think this is going to be particularly a problem um, with respect to climate change because so many of the bearers of unequal danger are going to be ones where it will be in some way con impossible conceptually to pick apart rigorously the drivers that are part of a natural baseline and the drivers that are created by people. And so I think in some way there's a case to be made for driving forward the presumption that we're jointly responsible for these things that happen to people, in part because the alternative is, is such a, um, an evasion of, of responsibility and tendency to naturalize what we see. Hi. I kind of have the same question, but from a slightly different angle. So part of what you're saying is if we want to get ordinary Americans, the coal miners, and so on on board again on the sort of environmental agenda, we have to take the environmental justice strand of environmentalism seriously again, right? And it, so, so, so then I'm, and I think that's right. Uh, but then if, if I think about that, it's going to be really hard to resist the global angle of this, right? If that's what you're doing, because I mean, I, I guess you just said this, but the Marshall Islands or the Maldives, right? These are countries that are actually disappearing for emissions that they did not yes. cause themselves, right? And yes. the Maldives are really hard to think about that. It's 
that's chaotic, is It's a very incisive and, and provocative question. Um, I, I will start by saying something quite pedestrian, and I'll try to build out. The pedestrian thing is I think the coal miners are gone. Um, the, the, the significance of what I mean by that, I mean gone as a potential environmentalist constituency in any future that, that, we, see, that we see coming in, a, in, our, in the horizons in which we can imagine our lifetimes. I, I make that pedestrian point because um, in a larger sense, I, I don't think we can get back the lost <clears throat> decades or sort of re rewind the spool and then, and then run it out again. Um, I think we, we can just think prospectively about trying to um, identify new constituencies, new horizons of agenda. It, for instance, an interesting public opinion artifact is that it often shows up that uh, Latino voters say that, uh, of all groups, express the greatest commitment to the importance of environmental issues. And I think, at the risk of generalizing grossly, that's often a description of, of urban and human and workplace kind of environments, as well as as well as parks and things. Um, so maybe that's the the um, constituency that we're talking about. Your larger point um, is quite essential. I think that we are living in a time in which our alternatives are really tragic in some way because our problems, it's quite a banal thing to say right now, but the drivers of our challenges, ecological and economic, and the ecological and economic are thoroughly intertwined because our economy is making our global ecology, um, are global in scale, and their logics are global and can't be um, remade from within any national polity. But our capacity to make deliberate decisions remaking the terms of our shared lives, because they are political, are caught within the boundaries of national borders. <clears throat> and in some degree, any reassertion of our capacity to remake the architecture of our shared lives, which I think is a critically important one, will also tend to reinscribe and insist upon the boundaries and differences that borders mark and leave people out. And, and um, I, I don't see a way to resolve that without, without remainder, in the least, actually. I'm not even sure how to navigate it. Hi. Uh, first, I want to thank you for the, the talk. I thought it was really thought-provoking this entire time. Provocative, and it's something I'm going to be thinking about for a while. Thank you. Uh, how, especially just sort of how the environmental community um, feels so, how, how the environmental justice community feels so foreign to those of us who are comfortable in the environmental. Mm, mm. Um, so, uh, um, and yet, as I think you're getting at, they're both sort of they're, they're both part of a maybe a, what you call the progressive wing of the. I guess that's right. Yeah. Um, and I, the question I have is before you said the piece about the coal miners are gone, um, but that's where I want to go because it seems that's the piece that you, you can't give up on because the problem that the environmental community has, as I see it, is that they've been with the progressive movement. So in the recent years, it's been with the environmental justice movement, maybe late in getting there, but last couple of years, it's definitely been a push from some of the mainstream. I agree, members. definitely. Um, but now it's sort of a feast or famine thing because when Democrats or progressive politicians are in control of, uh, of government, um, you're able to sort of build the coalitions to sort of push your issues through. But when they're out of power, you have zero leverage. Um, and isn't the solution for the environmental community not to sort of Continue to, I mean, that would sure build the environmental justice movement, but actually go the other way that the coal miners are doing really need that. 
What would that look like? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've looked at the election results for Virginia county, uh, county by county. Yes. Why I did that, I don't know. But, I, I can um, imagine why you did that. But what was interesting, in the coal fields, as you point out, Donald Trump won by huge uh, margins. But at the same time, there was a state constitutional amendment to uh, a union bus state constitutional amendment for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. A right, to, right to work amendment. A right, um, right, a right to work amendment. Um, and it failed by more than double digits, by about 15% in the cold field. Yeah. So the same folks who voted overwhelmingly <coughs> for Republican candidates voted strongly mm -hmm. uh, against this anti-union yeah. amendment. Um, so that there's, that to me says those folks aren't completely aligned with a particular yeah. party and that they're still somewhat up for grabs. Yes. Throughout Appalachia now, people are rising up all over the place protest pipelines. Yes. And I'm sure all those people also voted for Trump or most of them. But isn't that evidence we can't be take the pipelines and work back to the coal We could certainly do something with the pipelines. Yes. I I I'd be very interested in, in who those people voted for. As a I, um but yes, I but it looked like that this was on the same point also, right? Yeah, yes. So ideally, I, I <clears throat> would like to say that I, I very much agree. Um, just to put all my cards on the table, I, I grew up in West Virginia, and I did my first environmental work, which is probably ultimately why I'm working on this paper now, um, with a local environmental organization. It was sort of the only environmental organization at the state in the time at the time. It was an environmental justice group. I didn't know it was an environmental justice group. It wasn't concerned to distinguish itself from anyone else. It was just doing what we had to do there, which was deal with um, out-of-state sewage, garbage dumps, um, mountaintop removal mining, and the concentration of chemical emissions in the Kanawha Valley, um, you know, where they had that um, uh, tremendous uh, chemical spill a couple years ago, a reminder of that. <clears throat> um, and in my kind of public fulminating um, punditry role, I've, I've been arguing recently for the relevance of a, a partial interpretation of this last election result that really takes very seriously the Democrats' loss of um, Midwestern workers who, who seem to have voted twice for Obama. And the fact that the only thing that really switched in this election was not racial alliances. If you look, if the exit polls are to be relied upon, which is uh, risky, but what we have, um, what switched was a swap between the Democrats and Republicans in their share of lower income voters and upper income voters, um, which to my mind points in at a certain large level of abstraction to the same kind of potential that, that you guys are pointing to. But I also think coming from there and having worked with the UMWA's political director back in the early 90s when he would still go drink with environmental leaders, um, that there's, there's a lot of symbolic, emotional, cultural investment at this point in the idea that anything that gets figured as environmental is the enemy, and there's a lot of mistrust that any story about training or new industries or a new, uh, new New Deal is not going to come through. So I agree, but there's a lot of ground to be cleared and rebuilt. That's all I would say. Please. Is Thatcher. it realistic to think that this country and our political leaders can have an impact? on global climate issues, even though 200 nations signed the, the Paris Treaty. When we have 300 million people in each of China and India have a billion each. Um, and as they develop uh, their demands and their people's yeah. desire for growth. And yes. So that's the, that's yes. the first question. Yes. Second question, if I may. You certainly may. Is 
the disconnect I have, and perhaps it's my ignorance, with the treatment in your topic is most of the federal environmental laws either deal with the creation of special spaces, right, what you call the woods and rivers, right, mm -hmm. with the water, or discharge, either of garbage into the air or garbage into the water. Mm -hmm. They don't and can't, for a variety of reasons, focus on where these places are built, where the person who needs a new discharge permit for water is going to locate his plant, is based on local considerations and zoning and the like. And so, how does that impact the conclusion that because of the environmental, because of the environmental movement, whatever condition it's in, um, these things are ending up primarily in in poor neighborhoods, mm -hmm. impacting you know poor yeah. people, etc. The only place I can say that for sure takes place yeah. is in Houston, which has no zone. Yes. And as the John and I once talked about this, I think, and it's sort of remarkable. Yeah. But in other places, I mean, um, a lawsuit was brought by the Clamshell Alliance mm -hmm. against a nuclear power plant mm -hmm. built in the late 70s. Yes. And they tried to argue that the discharge, even though it satisfied the new discharge mm -hmm. permit standards, and everything else about the place was going to impact uh, local people. And it was so far out in the middle of nowhere, they lost the case. Mm -hmm. So that's my second question. Yeah. Where's the connect? Yeah, great. So <clears throat> I think because, as you say, these citing decisions, while they're often under, say, RICRA guidelines ultimately, really are worked out at the local level under state authority, under environmental federalism schemes that are pretty typical of the, the design of the anti-pollution statutes. Um, I don't think there would have been, at the time the statutes were passed and litigated, any uh, constitutional federalism problem with guidelines seeking to at least mitigate disparate impact in citing decisions. I think that that could have been built into the statutory guidelines and then been refracted down through multiple levels of decision making. So I don't, think, I don't think the structure of the problem or the general strategy that Congress took even would have prohibited some writing of these considerations into the structure of the statutes. Um, I also do quite agree, you didn't quite say this, but there, there might have been kind of a, uh, <clears throat> an implication in what you said that to a considerable degree, political decisions intersecting with economic decisions are just gonna reflect who has swing. Um, and I think that's, that's absolutely right. And I think there are two, as a matter of fact, and I think there are two things to say against it. One, I mean, to considerations that, that are countervailing. Um, I think the first is that a lot of what the environmental statutes do is to set a, almost, almost a citizenship right, and they actually used that language, although the form of the protections is not a right, against being driven below a certain level of exposure or vulnerability or risk, regardless of what the economic drivers and the local political drivers are. And so I think that the kind of consideration we we're talking about, would, it would just have been another turn of that ratchet, I guess. And actually, I'd, I'd stop there. I think that's, that, that's the balance of considerations. Globally, it's, another, it's a great, another great question, a really essential question. I think that if you think of individuals and countries and firms as rational self-interested actors in a, very, in a very narrow way, which is not unrealistic, but is maybe incomplete, then the answer is this is a problem we can't solve. Because it's always going to be in the interest of the current generation to sell out future generations, even if, it's, even if you could find some way to get countries not to sell out other countries in the present. Um, because people are actually sometimes capable of looking after their posterity and caring about it, witness the Constitution, um, and because the U.S. is still the most powerful and prominent 
country in, in the world still. I think to the extent that political leadership can matter and that the leaders of countries like China and India do have some of that constitutionalist sense that they're trying to prepare societies that will flourish for 500 years or 1,000 years. If the US had more political credibility on this issue, I can't say that I know it would succeed, but I, I think I can say it's where we would need to begin for it to happen and that it wouldn't be impossible. Yeah, thank you very much for those. It is, it's all an uphill path, I think. Please join me in thanking you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.